From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Kahuk goniotomy as a standalone procedure, part two. Similar to the fact that you can use it as standalone, it's not saddled to cataract surgery, you're similarly not saddled to the indication of mild to moderate glaucoma. First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that iWorld holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgicalsummit.iworld.org. I'll see you on the slopes. This is part two of my conversation with Leonard Siebold about Kohuk goniotomy. We pick up where we left off last time. Leah, what were your main outcome measures and, and how was surgical success defined? Well, so our main outcome measure was just that, surgical success. And for this study, we defined it as an IOP reduction of at least 20% from baseline um, at 12 months or a reduction of at least one glaucoma medication. What were your results? What were your findings? So, you know, looking at our main outcome measure of surgical success, uh, in the combined FACO KDB group, we had a success rate at a year of 71.8%, and a similar success rate in the KDB standalone group at 68.8%. Um, looking specifically at the mean intraocular pressure and how much that was reduced, as well as medications. Um, for the FACO KDB group, we had a baseline IOP of 16.7 millimeters of mercury that was significantly reduced down to 13.8 at a year. And for the KDB only group, which started at a higher pressure, 20.4 millimeters of mercury was also reduced down to a similar level of 14.1. Medications were also reduced for the FACO KDB group from 1.9 to 1.5 at a year. And for the KDB only group, which were on more medications, they reduced from 3.1 to 2.3 medications um, on average. As far as success of the procedure, I'm sorry, as far as safety of the procedure, um, you know, we found two um, complications that were, were most common were postoperative IOP spike and hyphema. So IOP spike occurred in, in a few eyes, uh, most of the which were controlled um, on topical or, or oral antihypertensive agents. Um, a few of those occurred in associated with hyphema, but hyphema was probably our most common uh, postoperative event. And that occurred in a, in a relatively smaller percentage of eyes than what we, what we were uh, predicting, only 17.3% of patients. So overall, I think our results showed that the procedure, both as a standalone um, angle procedure and in combination with cataract surgery, can effectively lower intraocular pressure uh, and reduce medication burden in a, in a fairly safe manner as well. 
On the same theme of the hyphema that you just mentioned, depending upon the type of mixed procedure performed, some degree of hemorrhage is to be expected. Many of your patients demonstrated postoperative hyphemas. How substantial were these, I mean, from a, a clinical standpoint? So most of them were, were fairly um, small, uh, measuring at the slit lamp of one millimeter or less. Um, and, you know, it was still a fairly small percentage in comparison to some other mixed procedures like the uh, uh, GAD procedure or terbectome where, where the hyphema rates can be 70 to 100 uh, percent, even, you know, above 30 percent at a week after surgery. Uh, with this procedure, we only we had less than 20%, so less than one in five patients had a, a measurable hyphema. And as far as your question, were they clinically significant? In most cases, it was a millimeter uh, or less. Now, this certainly led to um, uh, some blurred vision, usually intermittently for the first few days for patients. And, and I think setting expectations and, and explaining that this is a, uh, a possibility to them preoperatively um, prevents any surprise from patients they expect it, uh, it can oftentimes be a good indication that we've, we've unroofed the canal like we would like to. Uh, and in almost every case, it cleared within uh, by the one-week post-operative visit. So was it clinically significant? I think it was initially, causing some intermittent blurred vision in these patients, but still a small percentage, and, and it's a temporary thing that was, that was almost always cleared by a week. Some of your patients were on systemic anticoagulation. Do these patients present with more substantial hyphemas? And in your estimation, should anticoagulation therapy be a contraindication to KDB surgery? So it's a concern. Uh, it's a good question because it is a concern that we have um, because, you know, with any angle procedure, there's a risk of hyphema or reflux bleeding um, by removing the trabecular meshwork. Um, we did find that there was a higher rate of hyphema, uh, measurable hyphema in patients who were on anticoagulants. 24.4% uh, of those patients had hyphema compared to just 15.4% of the patients who were not taking an anticoagulant. Um, now, we weren't powered to really see if this difference was significant, and unfortunately, it, it was not uh, statistically significant. Um, but there was a, a noticeable difference, a, a slight increase in the rate of, of hyphema in those patients who, who were taking anticoagulant. Uh, we didn't quantify the uh, amount of hyphema or, or the measure of hyphema layered in the anterior chamber. My experience is with where the hyphema was similar between the two. It's just the rate of hyphema was slightly higher. Uh, again, not statistically significant in this paper. Um, but in a larger study, there, there may be um, that trend may become uh, significant. And so it's something that we'll, we'll keep an eye on. As far as your question is, should it be a contraindication to the surgery? I don't think contraindication is, is, is the appropriate term here. I think precaution um, is, is probably more appropriate uh, in patients who are on significant anticoagulation. So not a baby aspirin. I'm talking about Plavix, Coumadin, Warfarin, or one of the newer um, antiplatelet agents. These patients, I think, should just be counseled on the fact that they may have a higher chance of, of having a hyphema post-op. Uh, but even these patients cleared just the same as, as a, a patient who wasn't anticoagulated. So I don't think it had an adverse outcome on, on the procedure. Uh, so I don't think it's a contraindication. I think it's just a precaution and something that 
you know, you should discuss with your patients preoperatively. For my patients having cataract surgery, I do not stop their anticoagulation therapy. And indeed, I don't stop it even for patients who are having MIGs. And in fact, I don't even stop it uh, for dual bleed patients. What, what, what do you do? What, what is your, your protocol? I, I agree. I, I practice similarly. I don't stop anticoagulation for these patients. Um, I I think the most important thing is is having a discussion with with your patient preoperatively. That you know the fact that they're on a, a significant anticoagulation puts them at slightly higher risk of, of bleeding. If they're on, uh, if if they're able to come off their anticoagulation, um, and and you know, working with their cardiologist or their primary care, if if they're able to come off safely for a few days prior to the surgery, uh, sometimes we'll do that. But oftentimes I continue it. I, I don't stop it for uh, for this procedure, and I typically don't stop it for you know trabeculectomy, tube shunt, really any ocular surgery. The risk of of, of bleeding there is, is is usually pretty low. But if if possible. Um, and patients can come off it. I don't think it's a bad idea. If in conjunction with their PCP or cardiologist, you could stop it. Uh, but generally, I don't. FACO alone is understood to lower intraocular pressure in a substantial number of patients. It's therefore significant to compare KDB by itself to KDB as makes in the context of FACO surgery, since any difference presumably would be attributable to the contribution of the cataract surgery. How did these two groups compare? So in our study, they compared um, very well. I mean, very similar outcomes in terms of, of efficacy. You know, if we look at our, our success rates in the FACO with KDB group compared to KDB standalone, they had very similar success rates, around 70% for each of these. Um, if we look specifically at measures like the intraocular pressure and, and, and how that was reduced from the procedure, um, you know, in the FACO KDB group, those patients started out at a lower intraocular pressure, a mean of 16.7, and was reduced to 13.8, whereas the KDB standalone group, they had a much higher preoperative pressure, a uh, mean of 20.4, but they also were similarly reduced down to 14.1. So they both achieved about a similar endpoint of, of 13 to 14 millimeters of mercury. Um, but with the KDB-only group um, starting from a higher intraocular pressure. So if you look at the absolute IOP reduction, it's actually greater in the KDB-only group. But I think, uh, you know, it's a slightly different, um, uh, you know, at baseline, they were slightly different between the two groups. I think the safe assumption here is that the KDB significantly reduced pressure in both groups. And, and the FACO uh, contribution to that IOP reduction was was probably... Um, negligible or, or, or didn't contribute a, a significant amount over um, the KDB portion. Uh, and as far as medication reduction as well, both groups had, had um, reduction in, in medication use from pre-op to one year. I understand that the study was not powered to distinguish results between different glaucoma etiologies. But having said this, did, did you notice any difference? So we did see a slight difference in success rates between patients with pseudoexfoliation glaucoma 
and those with primary open-angle glaucoma. Those were the two largest subgroups included in this study. The success rate for primary open-angle glaucoma was 66% compared to pseudoexfoliative patients, which was almost 85%. Now, it wasn't powered to, you know, detect the difference, as you mentioned, and it wasn't significant, um, but it was borderline. And I think, you know, with a larger study, this, this trend could potentially become significant. And it makes sense. Um, you know, in patients with pseudoexfoliative glaucoma, we know that the site of obstruction most likely is there at the level of trabecular meshwork with that pseudoexfoliative material. So by removing that tissue and removing that pseudoexfoliative material, we're really able to treat the site of obstruction and and get a more pronounced reduction in intraocular pressure. So, And this goes along with, with other um, goniotomy or, or trabeculotomy type procedures that have a higher success rate in pseudoexfoliative patients. One limitation to this study was the substantial attrition of, of patients. Do you have any reason to believe that the attrition was selective with regard to results? So I think you could speculate here all, all day as, as to what that attrition contributed. Um, you know, in my mind, I don't think there was a significant um, alteration of the results based on, on those eyes that were lost to follow-up. If we look at those eyes that were lost to follow-up, some um, may have moved to other areas, some patients passed on. Uh, in most cases, though, they followed up with, with their local provider. At the University of Colorado, we were the only academic center um, within about a 500-mile radius, the only academic eye center. And so we have a pretty large catchment area. We have patients that come in primarily for surgery, whether that be cataract surgery or glaucoma surgery, retina surgery. Um, and so a lot of times they came in with uncontrolled pressures or needing this procedure, and then after the surgery, they followed up uh, closer to their home in the far reaches of Colorado or a surrounding state. Uh, and, and we never really followed up with them again. We, we, we never got additional data. So I think that accounts for the largest portion of patients who were lost to follow-up for this study. Um, if anything, you could speculate that, that maybe that um, those patients were probably doing well because if they weren't, they, they would likely end up back in our office for another procedure. Um, so you could speculate that, that maybe the results would look even better or uh, the reduction or success rates would be even higher if we had those patients. But, you know, this is purely speculation. Um, I think we we still had a significant proportion of patients that followed up to to validate the results. But, but you're right, that is a, a limitation as it is with, with any retrospective study is, is the attrition or loss to follow up. Leo, in the context of my own practice, it's not difficult to identify patients who are good candidates for KDB during cataract surgery. What are your indications for KDB as a standalone procedure? So I, I use KDB as a standalone in, in those patients primarily who have failed medical therapy. Um, either they're on maximally tolerated um, medications and still haven't achieved their goal pressure uh, in patients who maybe are controlled on medications but have had numerous allergic reactions or significant ocular surface complications and just cannot tolerate their therapies anymore. Um, if compliance is an issue uh, or suspected as is an issue um, in patients, those are ones that I think can, can generally do very well from this procedure, uh, particularly those who have perhaps a low intraocular pressure goal but not 
you know, substantially low, say less than 10, or those patients who have advanced uh, disease to the point where they really need a trabeculectomy or, or tube shunt procedure, I think KDB may not be the best choice in those patients. But certainly in mild to moderate, in a lot of cases, even of severe glaucoma where your intraocular pressure goal is, is not less than 10, uh, but the pressure is uncontrolled, I think this can be a great procedure. I'm using it more in uh, phacic patients as well who have failed medicines, who failed SLT, um, but who are not necessarily in need of cataract surgery, and we want to try and avoid, you know, a blood-forming procedure such as a trabeculectomy or a tube shunt because of the complications associated with them. I think KDB is a great option, sort of a middle ground um, to try and control that patient and avoid a more um, a more prolonged recovery uh, with with more serious risks, such as with the trabeculectomy. Uh, and in many cases, we're able to to uh, um, save that patient from from needing a bleb, and and this can have huge impact on on the quality of life for that patient. Uh, not to to be putting an implant in their eye, or creating a a hole or a, a new opening that that is fraught with with problems down the road. Leo, when I think of MIGS, I, I think of the indicated patient, the indicated pathology to to be mild to moderate glaucoma. Is is that true uh, with the KDB procedure? So with the KDB procedure, um, you know, similar to the fact that you can use it as standalone, it's not saddled to cataract surgery, you're similarly not saddled to the indication of mild to moderate glaucoma. You can use this in those phacic, pseudophagic patients and also those severe um, you know, moderate to severe patients who may not qualify for other mixed procedures as well. Uh, in fact, in our study, we looked at that particularly and, and found that only 25% of the patients had mild glaucoma and just over 60% had either moderate or severe glaucoma, with 26% of those being severe. And we found that the success rates, if you break it down by severity, was, was actually similar between those two groups with no significant difference in success between a mild patient and a severe patient. There was a slight trend for, for less um, success with those severe patients, but didn't reach significance. And this is really encouraging. Um, and again, it adds, I think, to the versatility of this procedure um, that you can use it in those patients who may not qualify for other procedures and still get the success that you're wanting. You can still get that IOP control, maybe with a little bit more precaution that uh, there's a slight a uh, slightly higher chance that they'll need to go on to something more, um, a secondary procedure if they're, you know, fairly advanced. Um, but the fact that it can be successful in those more difficult eyes is, is one of the most encouraging results, I think, that we've seen with the Cook Dual Blade in this paper. Leo, this is great stuff. I, I, I'm really, really grateful that, that you've, first of all, that you did this study is helpful to me in the context of my own practice uh, since most of the other MIGs that I do are not approved as standalone. So the question of doing it standalone is, is, is not uh, not a viable option. Um, and I want to especially thank you for the generosity of your time with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm happy to chat about this. Uh, it's great spending time with you. Leonard Siebold is Associate Professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora, Colorado. His paper, Outcomes of Cahook Dual Blade Goniotomy 
with and without phacoemulsification cataract extraction, appears in the inaugural issue, September-October 2018, of Ophthalmology Glaucoma. Ask questions of Dr. Siebold or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.